AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 28th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined today by Jim Clausing online. Welcome, Jim. And Matt Kaiser here in Bedminster. How's it going? Good, thanks. And uh, Stan Nurlov. Stan, you haven't been with us for a little bit of a while. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you. And so let's go, and by the way, I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, let's go ahead and jump into things. A big, uh, there's a big spooky new vulnerability out there, right? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, no, 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 no. This, so this one's called Ghost, and I'm, uh, the, there's actually a good reason for it. Turns out that the, the vulnerable code here is, is actually the get host by name and get host by name two functions in glibc. glibc is a, is a, a library that's used heavily um, in Linux, um, mm -hmm. pretty much every machine out there run, running Linux or some other Unix variants is going to be running glibc. Mm -hmm. um, now, now the problem with this function here is we've got a call and it's got a little bit of a complicated name. Uh, with, I'm not going to read the underscores, nss hostname digits dots function um, used by get host by name. And it turns out that you can actually do a, a buffer overflow against this function. Mm -hmm. and the Qualys, who, who reported the bug, is saying that this has the ability to um, perform code execution if you can properly overwrite this, this bit of code. You only get, depending on the platform, four or eight bytes worth of space that you can write into, which is not a lot, but apparently they've got proof of concept code against the XM email server showing, showing that this is actually possible. Right. Now, there's a, been a lot said about this bug in the last day or so, and you know, as of, as of um, taping, this is, we're still trying to figure out exactly how critical this is. I mm -hmm. recommend that everybody be patching this. Uh, it's going to be a little bit difficult because it's so widely used. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, you're going to have to patch and then restart every process that uses glibc. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you may as well reboot your whole box to make sure you've covered everything because it is, like I said, so heavily used. Mm -hmm. Qualys has actually put out a list of software that they've looked at to say that these are not vulnerable, which is probably going to be a good list to start working on as well. It's a big help. It was some of the very more popular things that you would expect. Yeah, I think uh, Nginx, Apache, yeah. uh, OpenSSH are not vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing about this bug is that it's, it's not something you can really externally scan for until you've mm -hmm. identified how it's used in each right. piece of software. Mm -hmm. and whether or not it's actually vulnerable. Now, once you've identified something like that XM email server, you can write a, a tool to scan the network for that. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be a long slog figuring out who's vulnerable, who's not. Well, and the, and the wide variety of cases that might exist, right? It, so this has a lot of similarities to the Shellshock vulnerability yeah. in that you know, the vulnerability was kind of buried in Bash. It was a little bit esoteric and how you could you know, get Bash to exhibit that vulnerability. But then the question is, when does Bash get used? Well, it gets used in all kinds of sort of scripting activities in the background. This isn't a case where it's scripting, but it certainly is a case like. Now, um, explain a little bit. We haven't talked about buffer vulnerabilities or buffer overflow vulnerabilities uh -huh. for a while. And that's a very you know generic thing that's kind of buried in, oftentimes associated with C code. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So 
In most programming languages, uh, I think pretty much in any, any situation where you've got a processor and memory that needs to be allocated, when you define a variable in code, it allocates a, a certain amount of space for it. Mm -hmm. So if I say that I want to have uh, a string and I want to have five characters, it'll give me whatever the representation for five characters is going to be in memory. Mm -hmm. uh, there are functions which will operate on, those, on that allocated space. Some of the older ones, like stir copy, string copy, which is actually the, uh, one of the functions that's being called in this case, mm -hmm. um, do not check that the space you're writing to is the same as the length of what you're writing to it. And what will happen is, if I say I've got a space that's four bytes long and I'm trying to write something that's six bytes into it, it'll keep writing beyond the end of where I'm supposed to be writing. Mm -hmm. And that's called a buffer overflow. And what'll happen is whatever you write into maybe some other important part of memory, maybe it'll give you the ability to overwrite the stack pointer and control the flow of code, uh, which is a common case when you have buffer overflows. So it's, it's one of the like classic vulnerability types. If anybody's mm -hmm. really interested Absolutely. in it and wants to get a little bit down in the weeds, uh, smashing the stack for fun and profit is an mm -hmm. old, old write-up by Aleph1 in Frack. I don't remember what issue it is, but if you Google for it, you'll find it. And that's, that was like my first introduction to those, and it was a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. Mine too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah, you know, so, so this has been around for a very long time, and I think this kind of points out sort of that, that, that balance between code efficiency and code, I guess, resiliency. I'll use the term resiliency. And that, it, you know, there was a programming language you, you may have heard of called ADA, mm -hmm. ADA, that had strict typing associated with it. That is basically it bound you to a, you, you had to declare the, the size and the, the type of every variable. And there was checking for each time a function was called associated with that, those, those variables to specifically avoid buffer overflows, whereas C doesn't have those controls. It depends on the programmer to put those checks into place and, and protect against those. And so I think, you know, it, I'm actually a little bit surprised that buffer overflow vulnerabilities on one hand still exist or that we've had such a long, what I feel to be somewhat of a hiatus, that we haven't seen that many of them recently, or at least not buried in the C libraries, but this is a case where obviously they're, they're coming to, to, to uh, the surface again. And I think it's a, yet another example where we're gonna see more and more of these vulnerabilities that are widespread across many different operating systems, applications, and things like that that are dependent on uh, you know, similar code. Yeah, and this is one of those cases like we talked about with the bash, you know, that it kind of got the vulnerability was introduced uh, in there and it sat there for a long time. The, the vulnerability mm -hmm. actually has been there since November of 2000 and was fixed mm -hmm. in May of 2013. But at the time, they didn't realize that it was potentially remotely exploitable. So they didn't make a big deal out of backpatching all of the versions of Linux that are on long-term support. So mm -hmm. uh, there are, you know, some of the newer versions are not vulnerable to this because they're running the newer patched version. And it's now that the all of the Linux distributions are backporting this patch and, you know, releasing patches for some of their older versions that are still under support. So... Mm -hmm. It's it's one of those that slipped by for quite a while. 
Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. It's another example like that. Now, it is encouraging, I wasn't aware of this before, that the, uh, the newer versions are not susceptible, but... Um, well, there's, yeah. there's something I do want to say about that, is that sometimes you'll have um, code that has, there's a difference between dynamic compilation and static mm -hmm. compilation. Now, if, if, if you've got code that's using glibc dynamically, mm -hmm. it means it's going to reach out and grab whatever version's available on the system, and that means right. if you replace it on the system, you've fixed it across all the, the code that was well, it dynamically. If you've got it statically compiled into the code you're using, you're going to have to recompile the whole thing to replace the bad code. Right. And identifying that's going to be a little bit of a trick. Mm -hmm. And I, I did want to say, um, Jim reminded me, he's, you started talking about it being remotely execute, um, exploitable. It is locally exploitable. That is, right. if you, they do have proof of concept code that shows that you can overwrite this in the function locally. So if there's a way you can use it to you know, exploit something locally, get if you're on the machine and you're able to feed uh, a domain name that, that fits the characteristics mm -hmm. to a local, a local application, you might be able to gain control of it and operate at its uh, as, as its process. Privilege escalation attack? Thank you, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to say that, but it's a very roundabout way of doing it. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, well, good. Well, thank you for bringing that. Uh, and so, Jim, I guess uh, we've seen some uh, zero-day activity on uh, a flash vulnerability. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. Uh, this. I, I was actually, at, before yesterday, figured this was going to be the biggest story of the week because last week it was getting a lot of press. Now all of a sudden this glibc thing's been getting a lot of press in the last 24 hours. Last week there were a couple of blog posts uh, and, some, and a couple of security advisors out of Adobe about uh, some zero days, two different zero days, in uh, Adobe Flash player. Mm -hmm. And this resulted in Adobe actually releasing out of cycle patches over the weekend. So if you're running you know, your Adobe to auto update, you should have gotten prompted that your Flash player was out of date and needed updated and should have been prompted to update that or hopefully um, enterprises will be pushing out the new version of a flash player this week. The big thing is that it was known to be used by the Angler exploit kit was was exploiting this in the wild last week. Um, so if they could, if you know, if a bad guy could lure you to a a site that uh, gave you a crafted flash video, you know, flash movie. Um, mm -hmm. They were able to exploit uh, IE, Chrome, Firefox to get malware onto systems. So, um, so it was a it was a big deal last week. Uh, as I said, fortunately, the Adobe re, uh, released out of cycle patches over the weekend. The currently available Flash player uh, is, is patched for the the known vulnerabilities that were being ex exploited as of last week. I've noticed that, uh, at least in some applications, Adobe's being a little more aggressive about, uh, about patch management. That is, they, I think they used to give you the option of getting a notification. Now they have the option of automatically applying patches or getting a notification of patches or you have the option of ignoring that. I think they obviously would discourage that. But uh, do you know if that's, uh, that's true with Flash as well? I believe so, but I don't remember. I know that um, 
that some of the browsers, if they're running an old version, can disable that. And I know Firefox mm -hmm. was doing that prior to the to the updated version. So you may you know you may see instances of that in your browser where it says you've got an old version of Flash and mm -hmm. you need to update it. Okay. I think it's an option. I seem to recall seeing it this last this weekend. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it, you know it's an encouraging move. It, I think the, uh, the the notion of updating software automatically is uh, is becoming a much more important a aspect of uh, you know because it, even mature software can have vulnerabilities in it. <laughs> okay, so uh, Jim, maybe you can give us uh, a little bit of an update on. Uh, with last week, we talked a little bit about bad passwords, and uh, you know we had talked about. Uh, taking a look at uh, getting an update on what's on the honeypot. So tell us, what did you find? Yeah, well, I, I was sorry I couldn't join you last week, but I was deathly ill, actually, at, the, at that point. So, um, but I did watch the show and was interested to see the report. Um, and, and Matt actually, since then, had uh, pointed out another blog post that was... Uh, in Ars Technica about, um, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six is the most common password, but here's why that's misleading. And that, and they actually make a couple of really good points in there um, that although one point, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six is the, the most popular password, it's actually a much smaller percentage of all the passwords than, than was the case a couple of years ago. Um, you know, when I've done these in the past, on some, after some of the password breaches, when I've done some of the analysis, you know, you'll have password or one, two, three, four, five, six being five or 10% of the, the passwords in use. And this Ars Technica article points out that um, in, this, in this latest data set, it's less than half of 1%. Mm. So that's actually a good sign. Um, yeah, but since cool. you know, since you guys talked about it last week, I decided it was time to go back and take a look at the honeypot since it's been quite a while since I've uh, done one of these analyses. And this time uh, I did not go back and analyze all of the passwords that we've ever captured since we started running this honeypot. The honeypot's been out there, Kippo's been installed since July of 2011, and we've actually mm -hmm. been getting POP3 passwords on this honeypot since 2009. But in this case, I just went back to about the 1st of September. It did actually, I think, probably uh, went back to about the 30th of August. But I ran about about five months worth of, of data through, and one of the the first things I noticed was the quantity of the password guessing that we're getting against our Kippo honeypot has increased dramatically. Mm -hmm. Just in five months, we got 1.2 million password guesses, password you know, attempts, versus in our first two years that we were running the honeypot, we only had about 300,000. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was the first big thing that I noticed. Um, and it, again, I did most of this analysis using uh, People, which is a software package by Robin Wood. Um, 
but I also this time added uh, some graphs that I got from KippoGraph. So the the first of those is is this one here, which shows the top 20 days in the last five months where we got most of the probes. We had days where we had 50,000 guesses here, December 5th and December 21st. Even though this is a honeypot that doesn't really, you know, isn't really advertised any place, it still gets an awful lot of uh, attention. Now, this one, just to give you a little sense of how things are going here, you can see from this graph the number of probes per day. In Right around Thanksgiving, we saw uh, the number of probes increasing quite a bit. We've been seeing, where we had been seeing three, four, five thousand probes a day, you know, now we're seeing these peaks up, upwards of 50,000, and the, the baseline up in the 20, 25, 30,000 probe per day range. That was, that was one of the big things that came from this analysis. Again, the, the top 10 passwords that were attempted, nothing particularly new here. One, two, three, four, five, six, admin, password. As that uh, Ars Technica article suggested, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, which is the default Kippo password. If you type that in, you will get in and you can get on the, the honeypot and try to play around. It's the most popular password, but it was less than one half of 1% of all the attempts in the last five months. So, Jim, uh, can you, uh, uh, I guess one of the things I, I, I'm kind of wondering here, are, are there particular ports and protocols that are, that Kippo's kind of watching for, or is it willing to accept on any port? Uh, Kippo, it, Kippo itself is an SSH honeypot. So it's, you know, that's one of our top 10 most probed ports every week doing password mm -hmm. guessing. And that's what Kippo is there to, to catch is SSH okay. password attempts. So it's not looking at Telnet and um, you'd mentioned uh, POP3 earlier. That's a separate activity? Right. This particular honeypot, we've been capturing um, POP3 and we, we don't actually capture Telnet passwords real well at the moment. Um, we've see, we see the Telnet attempts, but we've been capturing the POP3 passwords and the SSH password guessing uh, for several years now. And okay. so the most of the, uh, actually all of the uh, password guesses that I'm going over in, in this particular uh, analysis were SSH uh, password attempts. Okay. And since it's SSH, uh, it's not real surprise that root is the, is the username that is attempted most often. The, the one that kind of surprised me was this PLCM SPLP. I have no idea what that user is, but it made the top 10, but it was only 174 attempts, again, out of 1.2 million. This one was uh, kind of interesting to me. I, I was kind of expecting most of the password guessing attempts to be one of these libraries, and it mm -hmm. turns out that it's actually... Putty that is at least 
is identified as the client that is being used in the vast majority of the attempts. Yeah, there are several versions of PuTTY, uh, if, as you can see in here, release 0 0.63, and this one that looks like a custom version there that's uh, May 14th, 2009. But yeah, so most of the password guessing attempts you know, seem to be using, to actually be using PuTTY. It doesn't seem to be as automated as I thought it was going to be. Curious, yeah. So to interject briefly, I did take a look at PLCMS PLP here, and uh, turns out that's related to Polycom SIP phones, and that's a default password and username for oh, the no case. Kidding. So um, apparently, somebody else knows that. <laughs> <laughs> apparently. Now, one of, one of the things that uh, Kippo, as a as a honeypot, does is if you log in, if you guess the right password, which by default is one, two, three, four, five, six, you can add other passwords that'll let the, the user in. Then the, the bad guy can, they're presented with a Debian-ish looking Unix that they can, or Linux, that they can then get in and play with. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that uh, Kippo can keep track of is you know, what are they trying to do? And so this shows a, a graph of the number of times that it appears that a, a human is doing something, whether they're trying to you know, download another tool. One of the first things they usually do is try to shut off IP tables. So I, I, I thought this was interesting, even though we've seen this huge increase in the number of guessing attempts since about the end of uh, November, the actual, once they're in, the actual volume of things that they do has not, it has spiked a couple of times, but we haven't seen the volume increase in the human activity that we've seen in the password guessing itself. Well, and, and you know, this uh, Kippo is a kind of a well-known tool. So if you are actually capturing somebody in here, it, it it's likely it's not a particularly sophisticated attacker. Is that, I mean, yeah, is that a correct? Yeah, that's, that's probably true. I, I have taken a couple of, I've done a couple of things to try to hide the fact that it's Kippo here. And there is a, actually uh, another version that I was thinking of updating to uh, sometime in the near future that tries harder to hide the fact that it's Kippo to, to you know, to try to catch more folks who, once they log in, if they see that it's Kippo, they immediately log back out. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that the IPs that did most of the, the probing were all from a, a subnet in Hong Kong that I, I suspect that they're, a lot of those machines are compromised machines. I don't expect that those were actually where the bad guys were mm -hmm. located. Um, right. But... I thought it interesting that nine of the top ten were all in the same subnet in Hong Kong. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that is a little bit, um, I guess, unexpected from my point of view anyway. Yeah. And then uh, one of the other things that I've looked at in the past was the length of the passwords that they were guessing. And again, these lengths and the order here is virtually unchanged from the last four times I did this analysis. The most common length of password guessed was eight 
and that was 20%, 20.5% of the passwords guessed were eight characters in length. 18% of them were six characters in length. Dropped off pretty quick after after the top four there, down to where passwords of length 13, which is the 10th most common length of a password, were just 1.5% mm-hmm. of those guessed. And those over 55 characters in length were point. Zero zero four percent the longest passwords guessed in the last five months this says a hundred that's actually probably an artifact of that's the limit uh, of the size of the password field in my in the database where I store mm-hmm. all of this so they're actually probably run a little longer than that but the hundred character ones they they looked like they were just passing the the Linux hashes as the password mm. itself. So the the newer uh, password hashes in Linux, if you look at Etsy Shadow, they're a dollar mm-hmm. six dollar, and then some sort of a, a SHA one or SHA two or something, and then. Um, some additional stuff at the end. And it looks like these long passwords were, they just took the, the contents of this Etsy shadow and shoved that, the hash in there as if it were the password. So that's not going to work most of the time. Um, the longest real password guess that I saw was probably about 80 characters. I didn't, I Mm -hmm. didn't, actually count that up but uh, yeah yeah tossing those hashes at it that that, that to me that's kind of a head scratcher <laughs> you can kind of wonder if it's deliberate and, and they know some sort of a programming bug where something accepts that or if it's uh, a case where they were they were <laughs> had a programming bug yeah I, that's so. I mean that's what it looks like to me is they uh, un- unless they've found some version of Linux where you can do some sort of a pass the hash kind of a thing like you can do you know, with Windows in certain circumstances. Uh, I, I really mm-hmm. don't understand what those, what those hashes were doing in there, but I don't know. But we've actually mm-hmm. seen those for some time um, in the data. So somebody's been using that as their attempt to guess for some time. I don't know what exactly they were hoping to accomplish. But. All right. Well, great. Thank you, Jim. Uh, it, and uh, it's always an entertaining, you know, perspective to see the, the types of passwords that are being guessed and the uh, activities taking place there. So uh, let's shift uh, gears a little bit here. You know, a lot of people think of NSA as a, an intelligence agency. They have an information assurance directorate that is basically their focus is to develop capabilities to protect information and uh, occasionally put out some guidance. And Stan, you took a little bit of a look at this and uh, they were providing some specific guidance around mass destructive malware. Right. Well, there's been a lot of cases in the media, right, that talk about um, destructive malware taking down corporations and NSA, I guess. I mean, they always release guidance, Mm -hmm. uh, but here it was focused on what to do with uh, destructive type threats. And I think you know, if you look at the, the 
the guidance they have, uh, and it's very good, I encourage everyone to do it who is in charge of protecting the enterprise, it, it's mostly standard things that we're kind of used to. You know, they're mm -hmm. centered around preventing, detecting, and containing the threat. You know, make sure that you employ some sort of protection on your perimeter, something on the inside, monitor all the logging that you can. Um, mm -hmm. These are all complex ideas, but one thing that you know, most major enterprises are aware of, but maybe some medium-sized ones or smaller ones kind of tend to forget is this recovery. You know, be ready to respond to an incident. Mm -hmm. If a destructive malware type of incident occurs in your enterprise, uh, what are you going to do uh, to respond to it? So it's something important to consider, and uh, the paper covers that and some of the aspects, you know, mm -hmm. of the traditional, you know, kind of protecting yourself, monitoring it, but also don't forget about having a good plan for uh, doing incident response and recovery. Right. So, you know, I guess uh, some of the things that kind of stuck out uh, when I was taking a look at this is, um, you know, first of all, uh, this notion of prevention. I mean, you know, obviously you want to try to prevent the event from occurring in the first place. But part of what they talked about, I think, is generally good practice in any case, is the idea of segmenting networks off. That is, you know, don't let them into the entire enterprise. You know, if you have a large enterprise, you want to try to get it into smaller segments so that even if they did get into a, a portion of it, it, it makes it more difficult to get into other portions of the enterprise. And so, you know, some corporations are kind of structured that way inherently. Some others might have to do something deliberate in order to, uh, right. to, to create yeah, Some of the bigger companies, right, they have the hierarchy. Uh, HR is a separate branch and some other, you know, IT is something separate. And they might have their own systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, at the same way, we've also seen people converging, you know, putting everything in one spot. It depends mm -hmm. on each enterprise. That's why everybody kind of has to look at what they're doing, what is their business, and mm -hmm. decide how to protect it the best way with what they've got. And uh, the, the thing about putting things into separate enclaves, that's, that's a very good uh, principle of information assurance, right? Separation of privileges kind mm -hmm. of speaks to that as well. Uh, and another thing that was interesting they pointed out is you make sure that you're like, Admin credentials are very well protected and are not right. reused everywhere. And things. Again, these are all standard kinds of preventative measures mm -hmm. that we've kind of always described on the show and read about. Um, something important to know. And uh, I guess an observation of mine for the for the few mass destructive malware the events that have occurred so far. I think in each one of those cases, we can cases we can at least have some pretty good reasonable um, expectation, the evidence points to, I should say, that the attackers had a reasonable amount of time within that enterprise gone undetected before the actual mass destructive malware event had occurred. In fact, you know, if you think about the things that would need to take place in order to conduct an event like that, uh, they not only have to get into the enterprise, but they have to advance their credentials to the point where they would have some means to distribute the malware widely across the network. And they'd have to have some idea of how to conduct that and actually get it in there. And so I think uh, an important aspect of this, I think that in some of the recommendations they pointed out were got into some more specific areas, that is having a good analytical capability in place uh, to identify, it's likely they're people. They're trying to map the network. They're trying to do things to support this activity that's going to potentially take place. And so, 
you want to try to pick up any little mistakes that they make along the way that might reveal their presence and give you an opportunity to, to eradicate that before there's even an opportunity to do a, a mass destructive malware event. So, you know, kind of supporting that, uh, that detection thing. I think it's a little more than detection. I think it's just having a good cognizance of what's going on and, and right. you know, picking up on the subtleties that might occur that are in advance of an attack like that. And the last, you, you'd mentioned the, the containing thing. I think we all do things, you know, maybe not everybody, but you know, we all try to do things to back up our systems, back up the data, be prepared for a failure of a system. But I don't think too many are thinking in terms of thousands of systems being wiped out. Right. And so you need to put a little thought into that. That is, right. you're not gonna have necessarily resources to be able to restore all the systems at the same time. Just the virtue of having to you know, download the data if it's on a, you know, a, a network-based storage system, the, uh, the challenges will be perhaps bandwidth. So I think it's gonna be important to lay out your priorities. Who really needs to get back in the service first? Is it, are, is it the officers of the company for, or is it the finance organization? Is it HR to make sure the paychecks get, you know, so there are thoughts that need to put, be put into that in terms of what things can be put on the back burner for a little bit and what things really need to get done quickly to, uh, to restore the capability. Maybe it's the folks that are actually doing the restorals you need to. <laughs> I think they, they need to have their own backups and maybe at right. least one or two machines that they can, well, a number of machines that they can immediately start launching a recovery effort from mm -hmm. that were maybe cold spares sitting on the side, not on the network, not powered on, mm -hmm. that can just be brought in to, for this purpose. And also, I, I think you're right that the prioritization of who needs to get back online first has to go with the business needs. You know, mm -hmm. If everybody goes down, do you need to bring up, you know, is there a PR wing that has to be immediately responding to customers to say, we know what this is, we'd like to tell you as much as we can, you know, what are the critical business functions, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still have, from what I can tell, um, Sony is still reporting that their, some of their functions are not back up to speed because they're still reeling from uh, mm -hmm. the attacks back in December. So I, I think this is an exercise that I'd like to see more companies go through. Um, I know it'd be a painful one for a lot of, for the first time out to say mm -hmm. we are probably not prepared for many companies. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's going to be more and more important as this is becoming a more uh, prevalent tactic. Mm -hmm. I, I'm glad you used the term exercise because, they, because I think practice ultimately is what makes yeah. perfect. You know, pra even practicing on small scale. Think about a group, you know, imagine a scenario or actually, you know, simulate a scenario where 20 people have their machines lost or, you know, some server is lost or a handful of servers are lost and consider and actually go through the exercise of restoring those, perhaps on separate resources. So they're, you know, it's just a whole dummy exercise, but that practice will be a good education in the kinds of things that, well, gee, I hadn't thought about that. Doing is really the best learning tool. Right. And even discussing the priority of who you're going to uh, bring up first mm -hmm. uh, is important because if the event happens and you haven't done that, I'm sure that each enclave of the business is going to try to say, no, I'm the most important, bring me up first. And there's just going to be a lot of confusion and chaos and you don't want that in your incident response. So perhaps a publicized prioritization plan so that people know what to expect. Absolutely. And you know, many, many organizations, they have a business continuity plan in place uh, and, and so to have a business continuity plan that 
deliberately considers the notion of mass destructive malware, I think is going to be a, a value aspect. You know, to be able to tie those together, not necessarily treat it as a separate type of activity. Well, when you call it mass destructive malware, though, I think you also have to consider the, the less scary name of, of ransomware, where you've got yeah. something like CryptoLocker or CTB Locker, where you know mm -hmm. it has the same effect. All the important business-related files are going to be gone, and you better have a backup. Mm -hmm. So for people who are thinking, you know, I'm not a nation-state target, I'm a small business, uh, you know, wait and see what happens when your, um, your main file server gets completely encrypted and you have no backup. I think mm -hmm. it's the, the same effect. Actually, I shouldn't have said wait and see what happens. What I should have said is <laughs> you get your stuff together right now and start thinking about yeah. it. Well, actually, you know, make a good point. I think we've pointed out a number of times before that CryptoLocker is one that has the capability to go out and look for network attacks, Ugh. attached storage. You know, we have to keep in mind, if you have online backup systems, uh, the online backup systems could potentially be subjected to a, a mass destructive malware event. So there need to be deliberate activities to isolate those so that they wouldn't necessarily be uh, victimized in the same way. If you can synchronize an offline backup system with the same files and have it ready for this case, I think it's, 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 this is an idea that's hit its prime already mm -hmm. now that we've got this. I've seen CryptoLocker do it to uh, network drives and it is not pretty. <laughs> Yeah. So, at, uh, what, what, on the note of not pretty, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's actually not so bad. The, uh, let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And, you know, not a whole lot of new things here, just uh, basically a progression of some of the uh, previous report, reports that we had. First is scan sources and probes on port 32764 TCP. And uh, this, again, as we've uh, mentioned before, we're actually looking at the number of uh, sources that are doing the probing. Uh, it's not increasing significantly. We certainly do have that activity taking place. And if, uh, if you recall, this particular port is identified as a backdoor port that was identified in a, very, a variety of uh, home router devices. You know, this is, a, in fact, I think, if I understand correctly, the patches are available. Most systems probably, or devices, probably not have, been, have not been patched, but even with the patch, apparently the back door sort of still exists, but it's a little more hidden. So these are, uh, this is just an, yet another example of the uh, internet of things, things that are not well devised to be connected to the internet and uh, need to have uh, better security controls around them. Next item here is scan and probes on port 7001 TCP. This is uh, associated with uh, Oracle Web Logic. And, uh, but in any case, uh, I mean, the, it's a specific source that's been probing on this port. Uh, we've been reporting on this for weeks. You can see sort of the regular cycle of probing activity. And, you know, occasionally there's some other activity that's taking place here, but fundamentally, uh, this particular source is, uh, you know, basically the originator of most of the activity. And it's also probing on a number of other ports that we've identified before. It's uh, port 110, that's POP3, 1433, that's Microsoft SQL database, 1521, that's Oracle database, 1723, which is a point-to-point -point protocol, a tunneling protocol, that is, 3128, which is Squid Proxy, 3306, which is MySQL database, so they like to go after databases here, and then 8081, that's uh, HTTP proxy. So uh, a number of ports that are being probed by this same uh, source address on a variety of um, uh, perhaps looking for a variety of, uh, of capabilities there. It's interesting you point out there that there's another follow-up address that does the... There is another address. Uh, it doesn't look directly associated. It may be associated. 
um, you know, it's not in the same address block or anything like that, uh, but it is also in China, and you're, you're right. Uh, it is making uh, connection attempts, and too many of them are successful to be by chance. And so it's got some basis of information that it's using to go, so it could be a follow-up connection activity that is taking place um, associated that with that. That actually reminds me of a well-known uh, university here that does something similar. There's one IP address that scans for whatever it is they're looking for, mm -hmm. and then they have a, a follow-on IP address that does the connection and mm -hmm. additional probing. Right, and, and generally, you know, from the attacker's point of view, that's a more efficient way to do it. It, it also pr may provide a little bit more anonymity in the in the process. But all right, next item here is scan probes on port 7547 TCP. I think we've talked about this one before. It's associated with a protocol that's called uh, CPE, that is uh, cu customer privacy equipment. WAN management protocol, WAN being wide area network. Um, it's uh, actually documented in a, uh, a document from the DSL form. I think it's technical report 69 or TR69. In, in any case, this is intended to be a protocol used for managing DSL modems effectively. You can, there's a, uh, actually an article about this that uh, indicates that there are a number of vulnerabilities in some of the implementations that uh, that uh, are potentially exploitable. Now, this particular scanning activity here actually is attributable to a particular U.S. Uh, United States University that uh, apparently is. Uh, I'm going to say this is innocuous activity that we're we're detecting here. Uh, they're scanning around, identifying uh, vulnerable devices, but I don't think it's for the purpose of exploit. I think it's for the purpose of uh, conducting some research or studies around this. But uh, that doesn't mean that others couldn't be doing that uh, similar activity and uh, potentially exploiting this. In, in any case, uh, perhaps we'll get some more information about this as time goes on, uh, hopefully reported in a responsible manner. Uh, next item is uh, of a similar ilk, uh, different port, different activity, uh, clearly, but it's scan probes on port 502 TCP. This one happens to be associated with Modbus over TP, TCP IP, uh, Modbus being basically a function for industrial control systems. So we've heard a lot in the press about the potential of industrial control systems or control systems being uh, exploitable, inclusive of uh, you know manufacturing systems, uh, water control or water uh, filtration systems, those sorts of things. Again, this activity, and you can see that the similarity in the pattern from the previous one, activity from a U.S. university, uh, I'm going to declare that as innocuous as a part of their research activities. That is, when I say innocuous, it does not appear to have malicious intent associated with it. I just keep thinking, you know, if you're going to hook up an industrial control system to the internet, don't. Yeah. <laughs> don't. Yeah. I mean, I, clearly there should be protective controls around that. It mm -hmm. should not be something that could be directly addressable for the internet. There should be firewalls around that, or at least, you know, uh, locally, at the very least, you know, an IP change thing. So I'm only accepting from the addresses I expect mm -hmm. to a a expect connections from, as opposed to allowing it to be uh, accessible from the internet. Or the don't even make it apparent that this is a, you know, an IP address that's even related to something like that. Mm -hmm. Require users to VPN or hop through several other systems to get to it. It's still internet facing to a degree, but it makes mm -hmm. it much harder for a critical system to be exposed like this. Absolutely. Very good point. 
Uh, next item here is top 10 most probed ports. And uh, we've been seeing this activity very, fairly consistently for the last several weeks here. Top one on the list, port 135 TCP. This is associated with some really kind of strange activity we've seen. Next item is 9064 TCP, which is a uh, proxy port. And then followed by port 23 TCP and uh, port 22 TCP. We talked about that password guessing activity and uh, it's certainly uh, likely related to that. Followed by port 53 UDP. Uh, this can be either scanning for DNS servers, open DNS resolvers, or occasionally what can happen is it can uh, look like reconnaissance activity if those uh, DNS servers are being used in uh, reflective uh, denial of service attacks. Uh, next one followed by uh, 1900 UDP. Same explanation as port for uh, port 53 UDP, looking for SSDP or simple service discovery protocol servers that can be used in a, those attacks. And uh, next one similar, port 123 UDP. Uh, that's network time protocol, which is also used in a re reflection attack. So all of those are sort of grouped together here. And then that's followed by port 110 TCP, that's POP3 as uh, uh, we talked about earlier about a particular address that it was scanning on that particular port. There's other activity as well. And then followed by port 445 TCP, that's Conficker, and then 8080 TCP, often used for uh, proxies. And so uh, uh, the search for anonymizing proxies goes on. Taking a little bit of a closer look at the POP3 activity, that's port 110 TCP. Most scans, again, in this case, were from a U.S. university, and uh, there are others contributing to this that are likely uh, more nefarious in terms of their their intent. Uh, you can see sort of the regular scanning activity, but as you can also see that recently in the last, we're looking at 90 days of activity, but in the last couple of weeks here, uh, the density of that activity has increased significantly, hence the reason it showed up on our top 10 report. Next item here is the most sources doing that probing and uh, far and above the others is port 23 TCP, but the relative proportion of port 23 has gone down a little bit since our last recent reports. Uh, so we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at that to see what's, uh, what's going on with it. And some of the other ports here, we've mostly talked about those. We see uh, BitTorrent showing up on here, a 1900 UDP, and there's uh, clearly some uh, ICMP activity showing up on here. But uh, taking a little closer look at the port 23, and uh, we're looking at the last 180 days. You know, when I saw the proportion of activity going down a little bit, I thought, well, maybe this is you know, that port 23 probing activity is going down a little bit as well, but uh, it's not exactly the case. Uh, it looks like we're just sort of in a lull of activity here. What you can see is over the last, you know, few weeks, so, you know, it looks like maybe a downward trend, but I wouldn't treat that as a downward trend per se. We're still seeing spikes that is increases in the number of, of sources that are doing the probing, which indicates that there's somebody with a botnet that's commanding those devices to do it. And I suspect that basically what they've done is gone into sort of a maintenance mode where they have some proportion of the exploited devices doing scanning activity and another proportion of those that are probably being used for other activities. Uh, and I, I would suspect that most of that is denial of service attack activity. So uh, there's been a lot of discussion in the, uh, in the media about lizard squad stressors. There are a number of others that are out there, uh, unfortunately, and uh, as a consequence, you know, that's, uh, they're going out and searching for devices to include as a part of their botnets. 
And last but not least here, I wanted to share with you the daily reconnaissance index. We haven't looked at this in uh, several weeks. So uh, we're looking at the last 400 days of activity. And basically, there are two normalized con contributions in this index. There's the number of probes that we see and the number of sources that we see doing the probing activity. And uh, as you can see here, the activity's been sort of trending up over the last few months and consistent with a lot of the reports that we've been uh, bringing to you here. Part of it due to uh, the Internet of Things, more probing activity associated with that, and uh, the, the reflective denial of service attack activity can also contribute to this as well. And uh, so that's a little bit of a disturbing trend. We like to see this in the stock market. We don't like to see it in the reconnaissance index. That's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And then if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. You can find ThreatTrack on the ATT Tech channel. It's att.com slash threattrack. And uh, it's also available on YouTube as well as on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. So I'd like to thank you, Stan. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Jim, online. I'm Brian Rexrode, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.